When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In Spring Branch, we speak more than 145 different languages, and that diversity translates into a thriving economy. Our district's a melting pot. It's a great place to find the staff you need. Spring Branch is working for business. Yours. Find out more at spmda.org. Hi, and welcome to Looped In. This is the Houston Chronicle podcast all about real estate. The dirt, the deals, the people, the places. It's all here. I'm Rebecca Schutz, housing reporter at the Houston Chronicle, and... And I'm Marissa Luck, real estate reporter at Houston Chronicle. And today we're taking a look back at emergency rental assistance, which was a huge cornerstone and how the government tried to keep renters housed during the pandemic when so many people's incomes were disrupted. While it wasn't the only way that politicians tried to protect renters, there was also an eviction moratorium issued by the CDC. There were some local rent relief pilots. There were emergency orders issued by the Texas Supreme Court, but emergency rental assistance was by far the most ambitious way of addressing evictions in terms of financial investment. All in all, it directed $47 billion to landlords of renters who had fallen behind on rent. And all of that money was rolled out over two years, starting in about early 2021 after some initial pilot programs in 2020. So how did all that go? Today, we're going to chat with two different experts about that. First off, we'll be talking with Erin Hahn of the nonprofit Texas Housers. She recently wrote a report comparing emergency rental assistance programs in various Texas jurisdictions. She'll be talking about how it went, especially in Houston and Harris County, compared to the rest of the state, and about what lessons there are to be learned. And then we're going to chat with Stephanie Graves, who is the president of Houston Apartment Association that had a seat at the table in designing the Houston Harris County Emergency Rental Assistance Program, which has been lauded for its efficiency in distributing aid. Hi, Erin. Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. How much funding did Houston get out of all this rent relief and how many families did it help? Houston and Harris County consolidated their area funding. And so In conjunction with one another, they received $143.9 million of ERA-1 funds and an additional $157.5 million of ERA-2 funds. Um, And they also received additional funding through the Treasury's reallocation process, where the Treasury uh, recaptured funding from slow-spending jurisdictions and um, passed it along to quickly-spending jurisdictions like Houston and Harris County. Um, And so as of June of 2022... Uh, Houston and Harris County had used their funding to assist um, over 66,000 households. Yeah, and I feel like that reallocation that you're talking about is uh, interesting because all these different jurisdictions got funds to help their renters and landlords, right? The idea was if you're behind on rent, they would take this funding and make the landlords whole and you wouldn't be evicted. And different jurisdictions rolled out the program really differently. For some, people didn't start getting the funds for like months. 
And Houston and Harris County actually got those funds out really quickly. So looking back at it, how did these programs work? What were like the key differentiators for how quickly renters and landlords were able to receive this funding and how well this whole idea worked? The primary determining factor in terms of how well a jurisdiction was able to get their funds out and how quickly they were able to get their funds out was whether the jurisdiction had pre-existing experience and an infrastructure for dispersing rental assistance, um, which Harris County had because it had prior experience um, dispersing CARES funding, but before that it had experience dispersing Harvey relief funds. Um, And so administering aid is something that Harris County is familiar with doing. Um, And they also have an infrastructure and a network for doing so. So how did Houston compare, I guess, to other jurisdictions? It sounds like from from the research that you've put out that we actually did better than other jurisdictions in terms of doling out those funds. But what were some of the key differences you saw between our region and others? Yeah, so our data tracking found a stark urban-rural divide. Um, Jurisdictions in large metro areas on average in Texas were, were much more equipped um, to perform better in terms of dispersing aid quickly and equitably. And Houston-Harris County falls into this narrative. Um, but even among the major cities, Houston and Harris County dispersed aid, um, arguably the quickest, um, and they received the most uh, reallocated funding through the Treasury's reallocation process than any other city in Texas. Yeah, and the story behind the reallocated funding, again, is just um, some places were so slow to spend the funds that the Treasury said, we're going to have a series of benchmarks. If you don't hit these benchmarks, we will take some of your funding and redistribute it to places that are quickly distributing funds. So you could look at those reallocations as almost like um, a flag for whether or not they were dispersing their funds quickly. And it's interesting in the Houston area that uh, divide that you're talking about really happened because in Montgomery County, Several million dollars were were sent back. I know in Brazoria County, they were also in danger because it just took them a while to get the program up and going. They had to, I have this quote from the person overseeing Brazoria County's rent relief program. And they said, we had to start our program entirely from scratch. So it didn't launch its uh, rent relief program until June of 2021 just because it took so long to get the software together, you know, the vendors together. So when that funding was taken back, I guess, from counties like Brazoria Brazoria County or Montgomery County, did those just automatically go to Harris County or was it just pulled back into, like the federal government took it back and then the federal government decided which counties it would go to? Yeah, so the federal government took it back and then it decided where it was going to reappropriate it. The Treasury did prioritize counties within the same state that the funds were pulled from, um, but it did recycle some funds from state to state. Um, And so in the end, Texas ended up gaining more than it lost. As Houston and Harris County drew sort of low on funds, they decided to focus the remaining funds only on people with an active eviction filed against them. So then suddenly there's a situation where landlords were like, hey, I would like to help you. Uh, In order to do so, I need to file an eviction so that we can apply for rent relief. I guess, how did that play out 
Are there any lessons to be learned from that? Yeah, that was a challenge that lots of programs have struggled with as their funds are depleted. Um, and so Houston, Harris County, as well as the statewide Texas Rent Relief Program, um, chose to limit eligibility at the point of when they reached such few funds um, to tenants facing an immediate eviction. In Harris County, this transition happened in January of 2022. And um, for the majority of the pandemic, um, about Two to 3,000 eviction cases were filed in Harris County per month. Um, but since January of 2022, we have seen eviction case filings trickle up. Um, in the most recent month that we have data for, which is September of 2022, there were over 7,000 eviction wow. cases filed in Harris County. Um, and so this is not specific to Harris County. Um, evictions have been rising in the months that... Um, Programs across Texas have closed down, um, and it just really highlights the need for additional funding for rental assistance because it worked um, to keep evictions relatively stable in, in lots of places during the pandemic. Yeah, and the evictions, you know, for people who haven't really tangled with it in the past, you know, a, an eviction is filed, and there are these services that help screen tenants What's the word? They, they scrape the data constantly. So they see the eviction is filed and they add that to their database. And if you get rent relief and that eviction is dismissed, there's no judgment against you. That actually doesn't get picked up by these screening databases, whether there was a judgment, whether you guys settled, whether you got your rent relief and everyone was happy. All they pick up is that it was filed. So that's something I've seen some people struggle with is they're going through this rent relief process as their leases were ending. You know, this was like they're about to look for their next place and they just had an eviction filing. And um, that turned out to be messier than a lot of tenants expected since they didn't realize how it all worked. Yeah, an eviction filing on a tenant's record will follow them for years. So then it it, it seems like it was a catch-22 after January 2022 when the uh, county and city changed their requirements so that landlords would have to file an eviction just for tenants to receive this fund. It seems like it's like the tenant is helped because then they don't have, they don't owe their landlord money, but then on the flip side, it still is a, a mark against their rental history. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That was a concern of ours. So, I mean, if I were a tenant, it'd be like a disincentive for me to, to get that. I mean, I guess it's like, if you need the money, you need the money, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I wouldn't have known that. I mean, if I weren't, if I didn't report on it, you know, like I think a lot of uh, tenants think that if the case goes away, they'll be fine because it's it's kind of confusing how these tenant screening programs do it. I, I think it's a disincentive if you know about it, but you might not. The other thing I wanted to ask in terms of uh, disincentive for landlords, and I don't know if this was the case for the latest iteration of ERA, but I remember earlier in the pandemic, landlords were worried about participating in some of these programs because there was like some rule or perception that if they got these funds and they would never be able to evict, you know, that tenant or some, some of them, I think were even like, you can't evict people on your property. Uh, maybe that was just incorrect, but what, what exactly was the rule around these ERA funds and the limitations that it put on landlords 
who elected to participate in this program? So according to federal guidelines, a landlord who receives ERA funds cannot evict a tenant for the months of assistance that they receive from the ERA program. But some jurisdictions kind of took this and expanded this rule, this protection. And so some jurisdictions had the rule that a landlord could not evict for, say, 30 or 60 days after they received assistance assistance for. Also in Texas, there was an emergency order from the state Supreme Court that impacted things. Basically, it said that if you're a landlord participating in emergency rental assistance, then your tenants needed to have time to see whether that application would go through before an eviction judgment. And I think some landlords who might have changed their strategy, you know, once they went through emergency rental assistance, but now they sort of don't want to go through the delay. They just want to get their unit back. When I was out reporting, I was seeing tenant lawyers coming back to them and saying, hey, you're part of this program. And this emergency order says that since you've already been part of this program, in this case, you need to wait to see if you'll get emergency rental assistance before the judge can evict your tenant. So there was some tension around that where maybe not all landlords were happy with the way that was set up. But on the flip side, while that was the way it was set up, that wasn't the way it always played out in courts. Evictions are heard in justice of the peace courts. Justices of the peace were really interpreting these different rules, including this emergency order differently. When I was talking to tenant lawyers, I was hearing them say the way these programs all played out in court was very different depending on which court you're in, which justice of the peace was hearing your case. And quite often, this supposedly like mandated delay wasn't implemented at all. So while some landlords may not have liked the delay, oftentimes they weren't held to it. Yeah, so there was a Supreme Court of Texas emergency order that mandated um, that eviction court judges abate the eviction case of tenants where the tenant and the landlord had both applied to and thus agreed to participate in the emergency rental assistance program um, for 60 days. But like you said, Texas Houses has an eviction court watch program where we send trained volunteers into eviction court to observe cases. Um, and we did see that where justices of the peace were interpreting this emergency order in different ways. Um, some of them were abiding by it and abating these cases where the tenant landlord duo had applied um, for 60 days. Um, some of them were abating for 30 days. Some of them were just giving the, the landlord the judgment regardless of this emergency order. And so we did see um, a lack of uniformity in terms of how eviction court judges were abiding by tenant protections. So I guess with that in mind, with the kind of lack of uniformity, I mean, did this whole program for eviction prevention work? Can we consider it like a success? It seems like there was still maybe some folks that slipped through the cracks. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think a big lesson to be learned from this program is that collaboration is key. A lot of jurisdictions learned through this process the importance of coordination with the eviction courts. Um, and so in the future, um, we hope to see better communication between programs, ERA programs in the courts, and better communication in terms of wait times. Um, and so that JPs know that it takes 
several months at some points um, for an application to be processed and they need to abate the eviction case of a tenant who is waiting on a pending application um, so that the program has time to process it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Erin. We appreciate your time. And it's also, I think, always great to have a comparative look at how programs roll out. I just always find it so interesting, either within a state, within between different countries, you know, everyone was responding to the same problem. And there is a lot to learn by comparing. So I appreciate you're doing all of that legwork. That gives you a broader idea of how the emergency rental assistance program rolled out across the state and some of the wrinkles that it faced. Next, we're going to be speaking with Stephanie Graves from the Houston Apartment Association, who can tell you about the process and the rollout of all these various renter relief programs. So the federal assistance was kind of given a few different buckets. So the federal assistance was kind of funneled out to the state of Texas, to Harris County, to the city of Houston, and that created some different programs. Uh, the city and, and the county combined into one program to give out aid, but the state program remained a separate program. And so Stephanie talks about how on the ground that did create some confusion and challenges in terms of figuring out the best way to get tenants this assistance. So here to talk about what's going on with evictions now in the Houston area, we have Stephanie Graves, who is the founder and president of Q10 Property Advisors, a property management group. And she's also the president of Houston Department Association. So she deals a lot with these kinds of issues and is constantly talking to people in the industry. So nice to have you on, Stephanie. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I guess I should start. What kind of properties do you typically work with at Q10? We have 35 properties in the Houston market. So we're only in Houston and we predominantly serve working class families. So apartments okay. are usually organized between A and D product based on how much it is and when it's when it's built. So we have a few A properties that would be those higher rent, but the majority and bulk of who we service are that BC clientele. So working class families, um, you know, one bedrooms range from 900 to 1200. And then we've got, you know, 1200 to 1500 on two bedrooms. So that working class family size um, apartment community is who we service. Could you, I guess, before we launch into what's going on now, could you take a step back and just kind of give us an overview of what Houston apartment landlords saw during the pandemic? You know, there's been almost, you know, or it's been three years of all these various aid packages, rental programs, eviction prevention. So how did how did this all kind of start and and what did you see over over the past few years with eviction prevention in, in the Houston area? Yeah, March of 2020 I think was when uh, they kind of shut down the shut down the world, right? So um, that's when we uh, we had already been talking and had kind of figured out, hey, what do like we knew something was happening when when the city was shutting down and when they were closing things down immediately. We're thinking, how are people going to pay their rent, right? So uh, we started collaborating at, as a board for the Houston Apartment Association pretty quickly. We had a task force in place going, hey, things are going to change. We need to provide resources to our renters and we need to provide resources to our ownership groups and management teams. So we started talking about, you know, what does this mean? You know, we don't make decisions as a group for all the landlords, but we certainly can make recommendations on what other landlords are doing. And that's what the Houston Apartment Association does, right? They serve just like a tenant organization, serve as an advisory board, if you will. 
to what landlords are doing, what other people are doing and, and can kind of suggest. So things closed down. Lots of landlords made accommodations. We waived late fees. Um, ours in particular, we had a, a program put together where we, you know, we didn't make them pay rent. We put it on the end of their lease term. So we, you know, would go, hey, three months, you can't pay. Let's put it on the end of your lease term and we'll try to make that right. This was before any landlord assistance came into play. Um, we waived late fees. We um, offered, you know, some people that were at the end of their lease. We offered to let them out of their lease if they needed to move in with friends or family. So um, lots of landlords made accommodations in those areas before landlord assistance was available. So we've got a long list of providers, you know, Catholic Charities, Salvation Army, that if a resident is having troubles paying their rent, we will give them resources to contact that will help them pay their rent. So we're already in the business of doing that. It was just on mass scale at this point, right? <laughs> um, so that was kind of what happened initially. And then as uh, in the Houston area, the first thing that came to flourishion was in the county actually put the first rental assistance program together before anything else happened. So kudos to the to Harris County. They did a great job of really jumping quickly to get assistance to Harris County. And that was the first program that we partnered with to try to get people um, some additional assistance. And I know that there's been various iterations. I, I mean, over that time span, the city and the county, you know, combined their assistance program there was different rules at different points of time, depending on where the money was coming from. Yep. But kind of the most recent one was the emergency rental assistance program, which you know had been going on uh, throughout 2022, but is sort of in the process of winding down, yep. which is sort of why we wanted to check in now. So I guess when you look back at the emergency rental assistance program, what were kind of the strengths of that? What worked well? kind of lessons learned maybe from earlier in the pandemic that were incorporated into this? Let me first state that I think as a landlord and as, you know, active in the, in housing, there is an affordable housing crisis in general. And the pandemic did nothing to help with that. In fact, it hindered mm. and it exasperated the situation. And so, you know, frequently when we have these discussions about landlord assistance, I frequently say, you know, this program, although it helped an immediate need, it was a Band-Aid on the problem Initially, I kind of put the affordable the um, programs into two buckets. One we call Baker Ripley, which was the city uh, county program, and that was administered by Baker Ripley. So that was one category. That was the first one. And then the other one was kind of the TRR funds, right? That was that te- that rent relief fund. So we had Baker Ripley offering people and paying landlords directly. And then we had this other program that had applications that were paying residents directly or the landlord. So you can imagine... As people are waiting for this money, they're applying for both programs, just trying to get money as soon as they can. The landlords are doing the same thing because our bad debt and delinquency is going up and we aren't able to pay our bills. So all of that chaos, you know, brings in error. And, and you know, a small company like mine, you know, we don't have somebody that only focuses on affordable housing or government programs. So you're also pulling, you know, leasing agents that have no idea how to administer these programs, you know, setting up computer stations inside the offices to help the residents apply for funding. And so all of those together, you know, could could any of it be fixed? You know, it, it was bound to be a struggle. Um, because Section 8 in general and affordable housing programs have historically been a struggle and have had lots of red tape, many owners and landlords 
were not willing to participate in this program because of the bad taste that affordable housing programs have. Mm. So because that is already set in people's minds, we did have a lot of people that weren't willing at all to participate. Fast forward to today, where the funding has run out, people had been overpaid or double paid. So um, if someone applied for for one program, got funding, and then applied to the other program, at some point in the communication, those two entities that were not communicating when they were giving money began to communicate at the end because they were getting their funds from the same same uh, funding source. So when, got, when, when um, the government wrote the laws on how you were going to administer this program, it said that these two departments had to coordinate at some point. So when they start coordinating, they realize that people have gotten funding double months at a property. So that's a long way around saying there was huge issues with the program. I'll use ours as an example. We had 20 properties that participated in one or both of the programs. Over all of those properties, we received about $500,000 in rental payments, which if you spread them across, you know, a thousand units, that's not very much, but let's just say 500,000 sounds like a lot of money. To this day, even now, when people have moved out, been evicted, or no longer live there, we are still getting requests to refund double payments for people that no longer even live there. Is that the state that requests that? Mostly it's the state. The TRR program are sending in notices to landlords saying, hey, we've reviewed the records from a year ago. This person was double paid for these months. You need to refund that money. Mm. So then there's a a rebuttal process where you can dispute it and say, no, they weren't double paid. You may say that they were double paid, but that money was really applied to the full balance that they owe. So you can imagine the paperwork. So, you know, as great as the programs are to be available, I would say at least 50% of the people that participated in these programs, if it were to happen again, they would not participate. You mean the landlords? Yes. I remember that it was a very chaotic start, <laughs> uh, and it was. I, I covered the the launch of some of these programs back in 2020, and it was like, "Hey, we have all this money," Come but then, it. but then it was hard for tenants to actually get it right. I mean, because they had to. To your point, some of them didn't have the technology access. Yes. They're trying to fill out on a computer that's not their own, or just. Yeah, just getting paperwork was hard for people. And it it sounds silly, but it was an immensely complicated process for tenants and landlords alike. Mm -hmm. And then also, my understanding, at least initially, was some landlords were worried to participate because they didn't know, is this going to prevent me from being able to evict a non-paying tenant at my property in the future? There was some fear around that. From the tenant perspective, it's like, oh, you're leaving money on the table by not participating. But then from the landlord's perspective, it's like, well, you know, we have these other strings attached to this money Mm -hmm. that we may not want to deal with. I I grew up in the the affordable housing Section 8. I mean, that's kind of how I got started. Oh, really? So, you know, tax credit Section 8, like it doesn't scare me, right? I was like, oh, we can get this done and we can make it work. And we were all just trying to make it work. It's right. It's like that. But For me, I feel like the important part is that it is a symbol of what is wrong with the programs already. If we had programs in place that were working, then we could have easily plugged in to those programs and made them work. We've got Section 8 everywhere. 
we have affordable housing providers that do this for a living. How come we could have not plugged into those agencies and made a way for this to work? There are organizations that do this. But you mean rather than creating a whole new infrastructure? Yes. So one thing that, you know, I had invited you on so we could talk about a new report from Texas Housers that compared (laughs) Harris County it, well, it compared really all of the various emergency rental assistance programs in the state of Texas, and it actually is very favorable to Harris County and mm-hmm. uh, saying that, you know, because, you know, despite some some flaws, because of Harris County's history of sort of doling out aid for hurricane victims yes. and other natural disasters, that there was sort of at least some kind of culture of this or idea of how these kind of assistance programs work. And also it, the report lauded the region mm-hmm. for some of its initial task force yes. uh, work, which, which early in the pandemic, there was uh, several, you know, housing advocates, landlords, people in the apartment industry that came together to kind of try to wrap their heads around uh, this potential housing crisis that they were worried about ensuing. Uh, and so the report does speak favorably to that. Uh, but I, I just out of curiosity, I mean, what do you think of their analysis in terms of, you know, should is Harris County kind of an example or is it just an example in a, in a somewhat, you know, imperfect flawed world. Harris County <laughs> and the city of Houston did a very good job and they are a good example of getting that program done. You know, like I said earlier, really strategizing, if you will, with the organizations that are already involved in that. I think the challenge came when other forms of funding were available. And if if that money from TRR that had gone to the, the state had been fed into that same organization, Baker Ripley, to get it done, I don't think we would have had the challenges that we have now. One database, one okay. facility. And keep in mind, you know, I'm, I'm on the National Apartment Association too. And so uh, I, I was on a task force for Texas and for a national to see how things were going. And Texas, compared to many other states overall, did a, a, a phenomenal job. And I feel almost guilty, right? Like we have this great program <laughs> and I'm complaining about it, right? But, and I don't, it's not complaining. It's just, I really feel like, and I think Houston Apartment Association in general feels like, there needs to be more of a spotlight on how we partner this, whether it's Section 8 or affordable housing or whatever it is, there's got to be a connector. There's got to be something that changes in the future or this, whether it's, you know, the pandemic problem that happened, this will continue to, to, to plague us. We have an affordable housing crisis and assistance isn't the way to make it happen. You know, there's other options available that I feel like we're putting Band-Aids on the problem. And although this helped a great deal, it helped divert evictions. In the long term, there are many, many residents that are hurting more now than they would have been if the eviction had gone through and they had been forced to move. This was uh, particularly in 2021. No, this is happening now. I have I have residents right now still living in apartments that owe $10,000 that we are going through the eviction process now with. The Centers for Disease Control ban on evictions did end in 2021. Correct. Uh, So now it's, I guess for well over a year, tenants haven't had that protection per se. So did you mean when you said they can't be evicted now? Were you talking about a different? No, they can be now. The courts are backed up. So it's taking 
three months, six months. There also is some, some emergency assistance available. So if you go to a courthouse, the court right now is telling residents there is assistance available. Do you have assistance pending? So the legal process mm-hmm. is elongating this, prolonging this process to make it more to make it detrimental to residents, not in a good way. So they're accumulating more debt, right? That's going to affect them long-term from a credit perspective than if we had been able to solve the problem as we went along. It's hard because I think that, you know, tennis advocates would say, well, the, the point was to keep people housed in the middle of a pandemic yes, and not have people living on the streets, but also like a catch 22 because uh what happens is that the, the the tenants like unless their economic situation improves correct where they get a different job a fundamental change in their budget mm-hmm. if they can't afford the rent now how are they supposed to afford it in three months yes. i think is is the point you know i've interviewed tenants who were just moved you know they were on the verge of getting evicted they did get a filing and they used the assistance money to pay back the landlord. And then they had to move anyways, because it just became clear that this was unsustainable. You know, yes. obviously, every situation is different. But I think to your point, we have all of this debt building up for tenants. And then now the assistance program is winding down. We're on the brink of a recession. Tenants are paying more for everything, not just rent. Yes. And we're in this like high inflation environment. So... What do you think is going to happen now? I mean, it feels like this program is ending like right when it needs to not end. Yeah. Like, like it's, it's hard. I know for all of its flaws and and everything that we just discussed, it was keeping people housed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, you say the, the situation has to change for the, you know, resident in order for them to be able to stay in housing. And just as the inflation is happening from the resident's point of view, it's happening from the landlord's point of view. And right now, inflation and interest rates are going up. So the costs for the landlord are going up as well. So it's a a very delicate balance and system. One month of not paying is put strain on the landlord as well to provide the services necessary to keep those properties operational and to pay their taxes to make the roads work, right? And to pay their utilities to make the water work, right? So it's all very intertwined. And I think sometimes tenant organizations, it would behoove them to partner with organizations like the Houston Apartment Association or other housing organizations to to truly have some dialogue about what can be done um, and how, you know, there can be a more relationship involved with how things work rather than, um, you know, partner together. And I think Harris County did a very good job of that by bringing everybody to the table on what needed to be done to help get through the pandemic. But um, we're still seeing the effects. I have properties that we don't own or manage anymore that have been sold that are still getting refund notices in the mail. I got one two days ago that said, this person was double paid. You need to refund this money. And I'm like, we don't even own or manage this property anymore. It's been sold. Yeah. What are you supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do with that? It's a different owner. Like like what happens? And we had properties that we took over that had $50,000 worth of delinquent rent that were pending payments that the previous owner was getting the money when the new owner needed the money. Like just crazy things that nobody can foresee. It's nobody's fault. Nobody foresaw like, okay, what if in the middle of this, an ownership changes, right? Like no one can foresee that's going to happen. But 
what I haven't seen is I hope that there are some best practices or learning opportunities from this situation that all of these organizations and entities take into the future. So what, what, what would be the learning opportunities? You've, meant, you've already mentioned uh, the need for the tenant advocacy groups and learner groups to work together. There was the task force from the beginning, but I'm not sure, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this. Did like the task force kind of ended, but then we still had another like two and a half years yes. of the pandemic. So, <laughs> so I'm like, was, was there an ongoing discussion perhaps I wasn't part of or aware about? So perhaps an improvement could be just continuing the task force to meet like every several months, you know, are there other kind of improvements that you would make to this kind of program? Again, housing is not a sexy topic for people to talk about, I guess, right? Like it's, it's kind of like saying, Hey, I, we need to improve the sewer system, elect me so that I can improve the sewer system. Like no one, no one sees that as an immediate, right. Anything to get elected for, you know, I think, there's there's got to be from a, a tenant perspective and 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 um, an association perspective more focus on this is a serious problem and it's not only homelessness it is affordability in general and everyone talks about it but there's not a plan to help mitigate this process and this problem that we're going to see and I don't see as you said you know inflation's going up recessions I don't see an end in sight to have better areas and better ways to, to facilitate this this change. We've got to talk about it. We have to have task force. We've got to have organizations to partner together. It's got to be a continuing dialogue of how we can help mitigate the changes that we're going to have in housing in, in the future. Do you think that this kind of a program could be a tool to use in a future housing crisis? You know, like I, as you mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pandemic-induced crisis. It could right. be a variety of things that that happen um, in in Houston. So, could this kind of a assistance program be useful as a tool? Like, should we just kind of pick it up the same way, or should we, you know, modify it with some of those things that you talked about? What do you think? I think that this program, how it was administered in Harris County, is a good example of the start of a program to make it work for people. I do think so. And yes, it was paper intensive. I mean, we literally got laptops and set them up in the leasing offices and had our managers and appointments every 30 minutes coming in with people sitting them down. This is your lease. You know, bring your lease, bring your ID, bring your proof of, you know, um, employment, like bring these things. We will scan them and we will put them in for you. So, I mean, sure, it's great for landlords like me that are willing to do that. But if you got, you know, a single people that have one or two people in their office, it isn't necessarily something that they can do. We had the resources to do that. But um, I think that the programs that are set up in Harris County can function. It's It just needs, you know, there needs to be ongoing dialogue about improvements in the process and how to make sure that you don't have landlords that cheat the system. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, for, for coming on. I, it was so great to hear your perspective. I appreciate you bringing light to it. And I think that the program with Harris County in Houston was a great program. If we could really, you know, build on that, I think it would be helpful. And I think many landlords would be willing to participate and partner in, in, in those functions. And thank you for listening. In our last episode, we discussed the rail yard in Fifth Ward, where rail ties have been treated with creosote and other chemicals. We'd like to make a correction to that conversation. While Union Pacific now owns the rail yard, It acquired the site when it merged with Southern Pacific in 1997. 
after the wood treatment had stopped. If you ever want to send an idea for a podcast or just say hi, you can reach out on Facebook or Twitter. I'm at R-A Schutz. That's R-A-S-C-H-U-E-T-Z. Marissa is at Marissa Luck 7 So if you go to HoustonChronicle.com slash looped in, we'll have links to all of the news we mentioned. Thanks to our print editors, Gabby Banks and Brian Rausch. Scott Kingsley is our producer. Thanks to Pharaoh Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos, for the theme music. Until next time.